We have seasoned heroin addicts who know how to dose themselves to not overdose. But now, instead of a consistent potency of heroin, people have migrated to fentanyl. The concentration is unpredictable. Users use what they think is a safe dose, but it is not. They overdose. This is how they're dying. I'm Greg Running, And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to Mind Body Matters, where we talk about all matters of the mind and body, because it, it does really, really matter. It does. Uh, it does. It does. And you matter. You matter to me, Rob. Oh, thanks, Greg. And I, I feel the love. <laughs> and uh, you matter to me too, buddy. Okay. <laughs> now that we got all that mushy stuff out of the way yeah. as, as, as good friends, but no, seriously, you, you do matter and you're a very, very close friend. Have you been checking out this uh, Netflix uh, show, Painkiller? Wow. Talk about a reality story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very much like the book. It, well, it's based on the book by Barry Meyer mm-hmm. uh, called Painkiller. So it's uh, it's very much like the book. And Matthew Broderick playing uh, Richard Sackler. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's such great timing because the last episode, we spoke with Dr. Robert Shepard. Yes. Uh, a psychologist who had the experience of being a doctor and psychologist back in the day that they're portraying in in the series. And he experienced it firsthand that uh, these big pharma companies use very unethical ways of uh, of pushing medication. <laughs> and you kind of wonder, yeah. you kind of wonder, I don't know if it's crossed your mind, but I kind of wonder that what is the big difference between the pharmaceutical reps and a drug dealer? Actually, uh, there's really no difference when push comes to shove. There really is no difference between the two. Uh, they are like a, a street drug dealer when you when you when you get down to it. I mean, I'm sure the drug reps, you know, they had a job to do and they were trained and told to uh, to market medication this way. But um, you know, you, you can tell from the the tone of the show, and also when we interviewed Dr. Robert Shepard that. The pharmaceutical companies are responsible for the opioid crisis. Oh, for right? sure. Yeah. Which brings us to today's show. <laughs> right. We're going to talk with another doctor, though this doctor was an ER doctor for many, many years, and uh, he would treat addicts in the ER. They can be a, a pain in the butt because very often they're drug-seeking, but they're dismissed mm-hmm. and misunderstood. This ER doc was prescribed Percocets. And then from Percocets, he became uh, addicted to fentanyl using fentanyl patches. He graduated to fentanyl, yeah. Which is a, a you know is is a huge huge issue in the opioid crisis now because there's just so much variance on fentanyl. You never know what kind of dose it is, and, and a lot of people are overdosing. Now this doctor has worked very very hard on his recovery from addiction. Uh, it was eight years ago. Now he's back working as a doctor in a, a primary care clinic. Dr. Gebbian has a Master of Science in Pathology and Experimental Pathology from McGill University. You're familiar with McGill University. In Montreal. In Montreal, yeah. uh, where he used to work, right? Yep. He was also in emergency medicine residency at Michigan State University College of, of Human Medicine. And as I mentioned, he worked in ER for many years and, and eight years ago became addicted to, uh, to opiates. Now he's uh, a huge advocate. He talks very openly about his addiction. I know he likes to talk. <laughs> as as I do too, and uh, you know my my appreciation for that song by uh, Pink Floyd. Yes, it yes, was from the Division Bell album you know, years ago, and it was called "Keep Talking." That's sort of uh, that's sort of become a saying of mine, 
And uh, this doctor, Dr. Gibeon, as you said, he's become an advocate. So I'm looking forward to the interview today. I am too. So there's a lot of questions that I, I want to ask him. Primarily, he's someone that treated addicts in, in ER. Uh, later on, unfortunately, he became addicted to fentanyl. I'm wondering if, if that's changed his point of view, but I'm really looking forward to bringing him in the studio. Please welcome Dr. Dove Gebian. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. On the podcast, we have topics that relate to mind and body, like the, you know, physical and mental health, and we discuss how they're connected. What does the mind-body connection mean to you? I'll just take it back to my uh, days as a resident physician uh, in the emergency department. And the first time it really came that I understood it clearly was when I was rotating in the ICU, uh, the medical ICU, and they would start the patients on uh, antacid medications. And question is why and they said patients who are intubated are under a lot of stress physical stress and they're more likely to get gastritis and ulcers and complications of the lining of the stomach and so we start these proton pump inhibitors proactively and so that was the first time I kind of learned like oh wow so you would think the person's unconscious that they they wouldn't they wouldn't be stressed they wouldn't feel stressed but no they do. And so stress manifests, even when a person, person is unconscious, their body still goes through a stress reaction. And um, it, so the stress can manifest in various ways. So that was really the, the first introduction to that. And then after many years of practicing medicine, I would see it over and over again, people manifesting their stress in common endpoints like headaches, abdominal pain, anxiety, people who are worried sick, they were struggling with uh, some unknown minor diagnosis that was going to cause them death. Like uh, they went on Google and it was the same endpoint that I see that, that these research efforts they made led to worsening of their symptoms. And, they, and like you said, they're probably not aware of it, right? Right. We're probably not aware of how much our body influences our emotional health and vice versa. The two are inevitably tied together without doubt. And that medicine is just getting caught up on this, particularly in psychiatry. Understand that these are absolutely connected. Right. And, and that the find more, discover more by taking it from that approach. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing primary care medicine right now, and I, I see it all the time. You know, just people who are worried about um, sore throat jump automatically to the worst case scenario that is strep throat, or that they, the most intriguing one is when they don't, when they're not aware. You know, are, are you under more pressure than normals or something else? Like I love asking the why question. Like, why is this happening now? And sometimes it's really full of fruit, the answer of that question. You know, what's, what's changed out of the ordinary? I mean, I, I've seen people go into liver failure because of psychological distress. I've seen people have bowel obstructions because of a change in their life. Uh, stress manifested in these hard symptoms. Years ago, you were working as an, as an emergency room doctor. How much of your medical training prepared you for addiction, to understand it? Very little, very little. It was learning on the, on the fly and learning from the staff, learning from the patients. We tend to, what I did was follow what, what, what my supervisors did. And it was very cursory and dismissing people and being highly judgmental of them. We didn't understand it well at all. And the worst case is, uh, when somebody came in, where they have a history of chronic pain or opioid use disorder, and they're 
in a situation where they're demanding opioids and the physicians tend to get their backs up. And this is stigma right off the bat, right there. Uh, so, you know, not giving people a fair shake, listening to them. As I said, the decision was made very early in the assessment uh, that this person's probably malingering and I'm, I'm not going to play into their games. I'm going to avoid this. Uh, whatever they ask for, I'm, I'm going to do the opposite. That was the kind of training I had. And that's the way I, I practiced for quite some time until many years later. <laughs> and I was on the other side of it. It's, it's really sad. The emergency department is no place for judging people for their symptoms and using that against them. So I've, I've had a taste of the stigma myself directly, and it's, it's very ugly. When I went into the emergency department, I got rolled in there, and um, the, the stigma was almost instantaneous. <laughs> I had never been to that emergency department before. I was in distress, and they're like, well, we recognize you from the media, and um, you're not going to play, you know, we're not going to fall into your games here. Wow. And it was completely unacceptable. And it's already bad enough to be struggling with the pain, and then to, to receive the brunt of the stigma on top of that, being judged before they gave me a fair shake, before they listened to me. Um, it's a horrible feeling. So yeah, I can relate to that. And I think a lot of people who are marginalized receive uh, unfair treatment in the emergency rooms. The work that I've done in addiction, very often it's someone that just started out with a, a very minor injury that went from Tylenol with uh, codeine to fentanyl. So we have to be very careful how we judge. And I hope that there's a time where there's more training in, <laughs> in residency at least, or at least in medical training regarding addiction. If I ever get a chance to have the say in there, I will be jumping right into that feed first and would love to have a say about that and improving our system. So yeah, I'm on both sides of the equation right here. I'm an emergency room doctor, now doing walk-in clinic medicine, but I'm also uh, an addict in long-term recovery from opioid use disorder, um, Percocet and fentanyl. So I'm perfectly situated to, to uh, try to help improve the system and reducing the barriers, reducing the stigma. How did you start using opiates? How did this whole thing start? It started with back pain, very common story here. Uh, but for me, uh, it, I had back pain uh, starting at 17 years old. And uh, when I played sports like ice hockey, I would feel uh, severe lower back pain. I would lay down on the floor and then I could feel something shifting in my back and it would, it would improve. And so that went on for many years, but it got really bad in 2008 or 2009. Two things happened. One was I, wo I woke up with back pain and it was much more severe than normal. And I received opioids for that. Uh, as soon as I got a taste of the opioids, I mean, immediately I liked it. it. It's this is an important thing for healthcare providers out there. Not everybody is the same way. A lot of people, a lot of people, it has no effect on their mood. But for me, it was like an immediate antidepressant. My worries, stresses melted away. I felt more confident, uh, more energy. Now I know that if that happens to somebody, that's a red flag clearly, and that person's more at risk for developing an addiction. How did you advance the fentanyl? Uh, I mean, in the in the fentanyl crisis, we know from the media that it's like 20 to 50 times more powerful than heroin, and here you are a doctor. How did it get from Percocet to fentanyl? Yeah, so this is zooming forward down many years. I had escalated my use of Percocet. I was taking up to about eight a day, and uh, I ran out. And at this point, I was already definitely dependent on the Percocet. So if I had stopped... Within 24 hours, I would be going through withdrawal. And the first time that happened was kind of scary. I didn't know what it was, but it felt horrible. I soon learned that's withdrawal. And then I started abusing it more and more. So the, the addiction starts kicking in where it's I'm abusing it. There's impact on my life. It's impacting my marriage. It wasn't present for family or friends. It was the desperation of withdrawal. 
answer the question. I was withdrawing from Percocet. I didn't have access to it, but I did have a fentanyl patch. And at this point, it's important to understand what withdrawal is like. It's a horrible situation to be in. It's like the worst flu you've ever had, multiplied by about tenfold with chills, aches, sweats. And mixed in with that is the sense of impending doom. I feel like I was going to die. That's the kind of the emotional state that I was in that led to this reckless decision to go with fentanyl. But so it's, it's not like a, a simple little step. To, to graduate to fentanyl takes, takes some effort, for sure. Not for everybody. It depends on, for me anyway, it was a much later step. Going through a severe withdrawal. I didn't want to wear the fentanyl patch uh, because it would concern it would be too slow of an onset. But that's mainly how, how people are introduced to fentanyl is through a pain patch, correct? Yes. That's and, and what are the pain patches used for, just so people know? So that's for chronic pain. It initially was meant for people with cancer-related pain, but it was also used prescribed by, by me uh, before my addiction, uh, to, for people with chronic pain who you wanted a slow, steady level as opposed to Percocet, which would be a up, down, up, down. I see. So he's slow and steady state. The, long, the longer acting opioids worked better, I felt, in my clinical experience. And then the evidence was showing that as well. Where were you wearing the patch? So on the shoulder, so skin patch. At this point, I, was, I would wear it intermittently two or three days at a time. And then this is when either I was just outright using, or I was having a back pain exacerbation. I'm using for both of those. So I would use patches intermittently for maybe a year. But there came that day when I was going desperate, going through withdrawal, made a, a reckless decision to get a, a, to use the fentanyl patch, but this time to abuse it, to get it to act rapidly. I, I researched online how to, how to do it. And I don't want to get into the details of it, but this is how people use, misuse the fentanyl patch. So it is a safe medication. It has its place for many people who are struggling with chronic pain, but that's not the same as somebody like me who had chronic pain but was using it for, uh, you know, abusing it. And that was the beginning of the end for me. If I hadn't built up the tolerance with the uh, Percocet, I probably would have dropped dead right there from an overdose because it was so potent, so powerful. And I loved it immediately because it was so strong. The addict in me was um, enjoyed that. It's the state of mind of the patient at that time is a mess. And so logic does not rise above this primitive desire to survive. That itself, I think, is a difficult thing for people to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Because they, they feel that the person that has addiction, hey, they chose to start the drug, they choose to continue, and that if they just stop, then everything's going to be okay. But can you tell us a bit more from your experience, what that's like, uh, not being able to really uh, make a logical, rational decision, and your body and your brain are just screaming out. I mean, the saddest thing here is, is the not caring part. I mean, here I am, an emergency department physician addicted to Percocet, going through withdrawal and becoming desperate and, and just foregoing my common sense. Like, how does somebody get in that situation? Like, this guy's defective he's morally defective something's wrong with this guy but why is it nurses divert medications why is it doctors abuse their prescription pass and this is not just me this is happening in patterns like, why are people doing things to shoot themselves in the foot you know who am i to be judging that person and saying oh shame on you for for using you should have known better you were a doctor okay that's the that's the dumb way out the smart way is to is to understand this person's struggling clearly they're struggling to approach them with a humane compassionate manner so, yeah, I get kind of worked up about that because it's, it's just too easy to write people off. And if I want to be a healthcare provider, it's kind of important to try to determine what's really going on with this person. 
I'd like to learn more about that state of mind that they were in. And I'm happy to talk about it now, the state of mind that I was in. But desperate, sick, going through withdrawal, and driving the bus was this addiction and not common sense. And it's not fair to be, and this is where this brings in the mental illness part of it, right? It's clearly a form of mental illness in that state. My heart goes out to all the people who are in that state right now. They're slave to it. And and the, I, I ache even more when I hear about people who throw the uh, the moral high ground line on them. And I see that all the time, especially from healthcare providers. Especially from healthcare providers. That That is amazing. I right? am most angry with them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Why are you judging your patients? Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Audible and the hidden power of shadow work. Hi, listeners. I have something to share with you. I've read a lot of self-help books, but there's one book that I found really helpful for me personally. The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. In the book, I found the part of ourselves that we'd rather forget is what's called your shadow self. I know it sounds ominous, but it isn't. By doing the shadow work exercises in this book, I learned how to understand and even embrace that part of myself. There's six activities and questions on how to discover, identify, and get to know your shadow self. If you're ready to master your shadow and start healing from within, then get the paperback or Kindle edition of The Hidden Power of Shadow Work by Marcus Black. Go to Amazon.com. By the way, I like the book so much I narrated the audiobook myself. True story. It's available on Audible from Google Play and the App Store. And now, back to the show. Talk a bit <laughs> about guilt and shame. I mean, the addicts I've worked with, for healthcare to have this view about them, and shame them, they are already going through a lot of guilt and shame. So can you talk about what that was like when you were in the system and, you know, meeting with uh, ER doctors that had this point of view? What was your own personal guilt and shame about it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you're right. It's already bad enough. Yeah. I mean, this is a common endpoint for anybody going through with recovery or anybody who's actively dr- using drugs. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know they're killing themselves. They know they're hurting other people. It's the not caring part that's chilling. From a clinical standpoint, that's what I care about. That's where the gold is. That's where I can help this person. So it's already bad enough. And then this person goes to seek treatment or, to, uh, or in my situation, applied for a job and, and uh, I was turned down. And clearly I know why, why, you know, it's not in words. They're not saying that, but my own kind, you know, that, that uh, my, I was no longer welcome at my old job site and they didn't explain why. And I can, I, you just, you can just know it's put two and two together. That uh, so it's adding to the, to the, to the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the guilt. You know, all these things. I paid dearly for this. I'm lucky to be alive. You know, it's made me a stronger character, a better physician. And unfortunately, not everybody sees it that way and, and, can, and considers me damaged. Right? He's not good. He's no good because of his addiction. And, and that's that's unfortunately that's a lot of people are like that, especially in healthcare directly. How ironic, isn't that? You had to pay the consequences for this, and you got one hell of a story. How did you bottom out? Like, what happened that where the light came on? Yeah. So being arrested saved my life. And uh, it's shocking to say that, but being arrested saved my life. Because that was what I needed to finally wake up and seek help and admit that I had a problem. Seeing my, my wife being co-arrested and in handcuffs. She was arrested too. Yeah. Why? Uh, that's the way the police play these games. Uh, 
Well, sorry. In in their defense, I should say, I had I had written prescriptions in her name that she wasn't aware of, but they saw the paper trail. So I see they can give themselves an advantage by arresting uh, the people around me and, and work out a deal. Like if you plead guilty, we'll let her charges go. I don't want to get into that side of things, but that's that's they played it hard. I was charged with uh, at first with forging prescriptions. There was a paper trail. I knew this. So forging prescriptions, you were writing prescriptions for yourself with your name, or how did that work? Uh, my other, so I would forge, but also I would had a, I would co-prescribe with some other person. I'd take advantage of this person. I would prescribe for their medications, but also for fentanyl, for them to give that back to me. So that's considered trafficking. But that, so the point I'm trying to make is that trafficking, I was charged and convicted of trafficking, but this is not trafficking to make money. I wasn't a drug dealer. I wasn't selling the stuff. Right. This wasn't cartel stuff, but it was still considered to be trafficking. You were charged with that. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly, and there's a paper trail. I mean, I, I knew about that there was a paper trail. I knew about that. But again, I didn't care. This is how sick I was at the time. And the, um, so the police caught up on that. But so they charged me with trafficking and, and forgery. Uh, but again, it's important to me just kind of, I wouldn't be here back practicing medicine with a medical license if I was selling drugs by prescribing them. That that would be long gone. Uh, that ship would have sailed. But So it's important for the listeners to understand that the trafficking charges were because of the way in which I obtained the fentanyl, that I compelled an innocent agent, the pharmacist, to give fentanyl to somebody who I conspired with, and that person gave it to me. So it's the giving of the drugs that's, that's trafficking, not selling. What I understand is that there was an arrest um, early on, but that didn't stop you, and uh, you, you ended up in, in bad shape, and, and then this whole thing happened again. Is that right? Right. The way in which it went down was uh, I made a decision one day. It was November 1st, 2014. I was in the pharmacy, and I was dying, and I can share a photo with you of what I looked like at that time. But uh, Actually, I've seen it. Yeah. This was six months after starting fentanyl. It only took six months of using fentanyl where I fell apart. Lost lots of weight. Everything fell apart on me. Spiraled out of control. And the reason for that is because right from the first hit of the fentanyl, it was so potent, but it's so rapid acting that I would get high and then come down very quickly to go through withdrawal even quicker now than I did with Percocet. And so it spiraled. And then, then I, to, to avoid the, the withdrawal, I would take more. And so that's a death spiral. And that accelerated over time. And it, that's what was the mechanism behind this falling apart. Then I went into work, I think it was my birthday, November 2nd, 2014, and I was met by the chief of staff and the chief of the emergency department. And um, they straight up told me, you know, like, kid, the gig is up. We it's know over. what's going on. It's over, yeah. We know what's going on. And the fear that ran through me and coursed through me at that point was exceptional. I had this secret that I'd been going for four years and, and kept it protected all this time. And it was out. And, and that scared the shit out of me. But at the same time, so they, they pulled me out, didn't work the shift. They wanted me assessed by a psychiatrist just to make sure before they sent me home. They treated me with respect and kindness and mentioned a rehab that was local. And then I was sent home and I enrolled in that rehab. From there, then the police came to visit me and were polite and, and kind to me and, you know, noticed to appear. So uh, you're being arrested for forgery. Uh, please make an appearance at the cop shop to get your fingerprints taken and a, and a mugshot. So that was that. And... Um, off I went to rehab, and I don't remember the first two weeks of it, but I went through, I detoxed in rehab, so sick from the uh, fentanyl withdrawal. Uh, but ultimately, I was discharged on the end of the fifth week. They wanted to hold me longer, but I had a court date. And that day of the court date, I uh, relapsed. 
So after going through five weeks of detox and then early recovery. On, on the day of it was the court, same day. you needed to be in court? and, and uh, I, I wasn't going to court myself, but my lawyer was going. And it was the day after I was discharged from, uh, from the rehab facility. I relapsed like the day after. Clearly, I wasn't ready. Uh, wow. You know, five weeks wasn't enough. So the same morning while my lawyer is going to court for me, it was the day that I, uh, what I call the dry shower incident. And I thought I had it under control. Like, I thought I could be careful about how much I used, but I thought I had it under control, but I did not. The next thing I know is I'm being wake, awakened by my wife in the, the shower stall. So the reason why I was in the shower, like that's where I would use. It was downstairs in the basement away from the family and the kids. I would lock myself in there. The shower stall was big and it had a barrier from the smoke getting into the bathroom. The next thing I know is I woke up and my wife look of fear on her face. So what her story, her side of the story is that she came down, she knew like I had disappeared. She was concerned about that. She saw me green faced in the shower stall, unresponsive to her voice. She called my name. I didn't respond. She thought I was dead and she screamed my name and shook me. And that's when I woke up. She said, I'm calling an ambulance. I'm calling an ambulance. And I'm like, why? I'm okay. <laughs> and you know, I wake up and uh, my paraphernalia is strewn everywhere. I'm like, damn, she's going to take it from me. That's the first thought that goes through my head. Wow, that was and the first thought was, okay, she's going to take lose, the drugs away from me. Yeah, I'm going to lose these drugs. Wow. You know, then the next thought is, she's really scared. <laughs> and I don't know why, but her side is, I was green. You know, that's one shade away from cyanosis. From Cyanosis. From cyanosis, being blue, you know, being dead. And I was very close to it. And I don't know if, if she hadn't come down there. I'd, I, Chances are, I mean, I'd stop. The reason why I was green is because I stopped breathing. Um, so I'm not oxygenating my blood and it goes from green to blue. And, uh, so I probably, I can't say for sure, but I mean, I know it was an overdose because the next thing that happened was I promptly had to vomit. That's the telltale sign that I had OD'd. It wasn't just nodding off. Uh, so I ran up into the, into the garage, puked twice in the garbage can. Uh, I didn't realize at the time. I just knew I had blacked out. I didn't realize that I'd come so close to death. That came much later. So you would think that would be it. You would think that's like enough. You know, I'd stop using from there. You, and would, then. you would think that would be it. Yeah. You would think. Yeah. You yeah. One, would, one would think. Okay, you almost died. Yeah. You, but like, stopped. as we said before, there's no logic in this. No. No, this is, again, a sick person. So what did I do? I continued using. Wow. And, I, and eventually I stopped on my own accord. And my clean date was soon after that was January 8th, 2015. I got arrested a second time. So the bottom hadn't happened yet. No, I thought it was my bottom when I got arrested the first time, the nice way. Yeah, so do I have this right? You were you were arrested, and then you relapsed, you used again, and then uh, you had the experience that you that you yeah. shared where it was almost a fatal overdose, and then you got arrested again? Is that right? Yes. What was happening is I was under investigation by the local police. Uh, the first set of charges was for uh, forgery, but the paper trail was there, and they saw these bogus prescriptions. My lawyer had warned me that they, I might be getting a visit. Like They hadn't searched the house which is usually what they do. And they were concerned that maybe I was wheeling and dealing and find uh, paraphernalia from sales of drugs, but no. But anyways, on, on Monday, January 19th, 2015, I knock at the door, 7 a.m., and uh, I look out the window, and there's like a beehive, a, a disturbed beehive of black-clad cops, like the drug squad, it turns out. They were running to the back of the house, they had a battering ram, and I had been prepared by my lawyer, this might happen, and sure enough, that's what happened at that moment. So, so instead of battering the door down, I just opened the door and I was treated quite nicely by, um, with respect by uh, the police officer. And he said, Dr. Gebbian, I'm like, yeah, he said, today your life is going to change. And he was absolutely right. 
And so I invited them in. They didn't need to use the battering ram. I had nothing to hide. My mental state at that time, too, is early recovery, very depressed, very anxious, just in a horrible state of mind. So I was already hurting to start with, and then and then this happened. Uh, this time I was arrested for the proper way you see on television, like handcuffs and uh, taken to the back of a cruiser, and that's when they arrested my wife. The kids were still sleeping. It was still early, so the nanny came. Thank God we had a nanny, and she took care of the kids while my wife and I were carted off in separate cop cars or police stations. I was taken into custody. My wife w- was released on bail the next day, but I was kept in. I couldn't make bail the, the next day because it was complicated. Long story there, but my parents, who would be my sureties, they weren't ready psychologically to handle this. It was very disturbing to them. I mean, they were worried sick. They knew exactly what was going on with me with the addiction, but they didn't know I'd be arrested. And so I, sta- I stayed 18 days. Here's the transition from a doctor in blue scrubs to orange prison jumpsuit. And the other interesting thing is when I was taken in there and the next day when I started meeting the guys, you're the doctor from TV. Oh, they knew you. They recognized you. Yeah, and they were they were respectful. I'm a little bit older than them. And they're like, oh, you're like one of us. You got, you're an addict, eh? And I'm like, yep, I am. And to be honest, like in the place where I thought I would have been worried sick, um, I got the beginning of my recovery really started then. In prison. In prison, yeah, because it was a community. And again, it was people and caring people and scared people, people who were fearful. I had a little bit of celebrity status. And I think being a bit older, they were a little more respectful. I mean, there were people getting punched out all the time, but spoke well and didn't do anything stupid and survived through that. And to be honest, I still speak to friends I made during that time. But you're still in contact with someone. Yep. Uh, it was a community. And, you know, it's like, totally ironic here. You're, you, my freedom was ripped away, but at the same time, I had a community and people were caring. And similar situation, people who there were because of poor decision making, alcohol or drugs were involved in why they were there. And... It turned out I was more of a role model for a lot of the guys there, a bit younger, and they could see that they saw that I was struggling, but I was happy to share, be open with them and open up and explain to them what I was going through and that they're not alone and they're in their recovery and that we can, we'll get through this. So I, we gave each other hope. That, that's when my, I, another sign of my recovery started because I, started, I had the munchies. I was, <laughs> I was very uh, malnourished from the drug use. And I saw the picture. Yeah, yeah. You were very thin. And my appetite came back to me of all places while I'm incarcerated. And my, my cellmate was very kind and let me eat through most of his snacks, which is unheard of in, in jail or prison. If you do that, um, you push that, you can get yourself punched up. But he was very thoughtful and kind. So instead of cigarettes, you're negotiating for Cheetos. Uh, but yeah, we were trading on... Uh, Items like I, I'd keep my chocolate milk or my dessert and trade it off. So lots of trades going on. And I was lucky that way. Met a lot of good people, uh, a lot of hurting people. And I, maybe that influenced my decision later on to, to get involved in uh, psychology, addiction medicine, maybe. Mind Body Matters is brought to you by Pivot Design Group. Whether using an app, scrolling through a website, or looking at a logo, For many, design is a mystery. Who and how decided that something should work or look like that? Pivot Design Group takes the mystery out of design. Specializing in healthcare, Pivot uses a unique process called informed design. This insightful and data-based framework informs every design decision to create effective and sustainable experiences and services. To learn more, visit www.pivot.design. And now, back to the show. 
Was that was that the the big thing that you learned when you're in prison? Is that I, I can turn this around? Yeah, you know, this is my first time even thinking this for now, realizing putting the two together. I mean, I took a psychotherapy training course, and I I wonder what it is, like what stirred the. But that's what I love. That's what I relish. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to communicate with people and help dispel their fears and anxieties and normalize these things for them that their addiction that they shouldn't have to feel this stigma that they're human being and that they shouldn't be penalized for their previous decisions, that it's an illness. So I, I just light up, love the idea of helping people in that environment. If from jail cell to uh, clinical medicine, uh, no, no, here I am eight years later with my medical license back. And that's, that's what I really care about. That's what I really want to do. It started right there. It's a good observation. Great. I, I know there were some other things that happened after or during your prison time that were challenges, but I, I'm amazed you got through it and you stayed clean and sober. But did you want to uh, maybe share about your mother? Um, that's while I was arrested and um, I was released on bail and after the 18 days and um, to the care of my parents, you know, here I am at 44 years of age, failing to launch and back at home with mom and dad. But uh, it was actually a great time. I, I I needed the TLC. I'm so lucky that I had my parents there to help me. So I went to a couple rehabs. And while I was at one of my rehabs, I got a phone call from my father that my mom had passed away that morning. Uh, my God. Again on my birthday. It's like, you know, the day, I, the day I went into recovery was my birthday. The day before my birthday, the day I was arrested, I should say, was my birthday. The next year, my mom had passed away suddenly in bed. She had struggled with back pain. The cause of death was fentanyl toxicity. So she had been on fentanyl. Did she overdose or? or uh, yeah, like an inadvertent overdose. It wasn't accidental like a, overdose. Ac- accidental. It's what I think the, the common terminology is used now. An accidental overdose of poisoning. On the same drug that you were taking, fentanyl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that almost killed me. That I came very close to death. Uh, and so she struggled with back pain for as long as I can remember since the 80s. And I had multiple surgeries and was really struggling uh, at the time with worsening back pain and couldn't get a surgeon to see her because of her complicated surgical history. And she accidentally overdosed. Uh, we got the pathology report back. And what confirmed that is that it wasn't a poly drug ingestion. Like if a person's going to do that on purpose, they would take Valium, high doses and fentanyl. So, and not only that, it was my birthday. And I know my mother, she would not ever do something like mm. that. You know, I know if that seals the deal. I know that uh, she did not commit suicide. She would never do that on her son's birthday. It was an accident. Um, I don't need to convince anybody. I know the way it was. She was under a lot of pain, so she 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 took a little bit more, I guess. Yeah, right? so she had inadvertently, I think she lost track of how many patches. So this is important for the listeners, you know, who are worried about chronic pain, is that she lost track of how many patches were on her person. And it's not like Percocet or Tylenol 3 or Codeine where, you know, you have pain, you can take a few more. You can't do that with patches. It is, it is clearly toxic. And it impairs a person's concentration and ability to remember when they took their last patch. And when we found her, she had three 50 microgram patches on her back, another one that was washed, washed up in the laundry, and she lost track. Uh, and I think that's how it happened. So that's the warning for the listeners is that um, we need to be very careful when we're using fentanyl patches. It's an excellent medication when it's used properly, but if the patient's in distress, then someone else needs to get involved and make sure they don't accidentally use too many patches. So I got the call in rehab. My dad called and told me what had happened. But fortunately, I was in a rehab and I had instant access to other people. So you had support there to, right there, to yeah. deal with it, to cope yeah. with it. And uh, just gutted. 
I was absolutely gutted. We did not expect this to happen. I'd seen her just the week before. Raced home. And she was still here. There was a cop in the room. And I kissed her goodbye. Getting up, I noticed under the bed there was a blue pill. And I knew exactly what it was. It was a Valium, 10 milligrams. This is exactly what I need right now. I, I'm in serious psych- psychological distress. I just lost my mother. I want to medicate the pain. That's That's the old me. But this is now the new, somewhere in between. It wasn't the new me yet fully, but I'd already gone through two rehabs at this point. I had good recovery and I realized that I do not want to disrespect her death by and re and relapsing. Right. So, right. so I picked the pill up and it's like a Hollywood moment again. I look at it and um, I handed it to the cop. Uh, they had taken all the drugs out of the, out of the, out of the room by that point, all of them, all the opioids, other, everything. So it was just one that was left over, but I was very proud of myself for not taking that. Absolutely. Because there's, there's the, the addict part of you that, in fact, probably people would say, "Yeah, that makes sense." That you, you know, you had an opportunity to, to take some value, and uh, you know, but you didn't. That that must have shown the shift that you were in with recovery. Yeah, right. They call it the hero's journey. You know, like I'd learned from previous experience that I was just met with pain and distress and and anxiety and worry and shame, humiliation. I didn't want any more of that. I wanted to look in the mirror and not feel so horrible about myself. You're making a big difference and you're speaking up and, and there's a lot of things going on currently in your life. But my question for you is about the fentanyl crisis as it is right now. Um, do you think it's getting any better or do we have a long road to go? We have a long road to go. At one point it was the fentanyl crisis. Now it's the opioid crisis because we're getting such dirty, potent street drugs being mailed from overseas in smaller and smaller quantities that are more and more potent. So it's the opioid crisis, and uh, it's getting worse by far. We could talk about safe drug supply. Yeah, I read that uh, somewhere in another interview that you had that you feel that the toxic street drugs, street opiates, should be replaced with pharmaceutical grade. Is that right? Uh, Yes, absolutely. What do you mean by that? We have seasoned heroin addicts who know how to titrate or dose themselves to not overdose. That's the, that's the way it always was before the toxic street supply came. Uh, and there were not as nearly as many deaths from overdose. But now, instead of a readily available, consistent concentration or potency of heroin, people have migrated to fentanyl because it's more readily available. But the problem is the concentration is unpredictable. The potency is unpredictable. And so people who are seasoned users use what they think is a safe dose, but it, it's not. And they, they overdose. and and this, this is how they're dying. So when you're getting a, a street supply that's increasingly becoming more and more potent and increasingly more variable in its potency, that's where the problem comes from. So we can replace that with medical grade drugs. And that's like the no brainer solution to this. Subjecting our own fears, oh, we're going to convert uh, people to drug users. That's a bunch of bullshit. Do you feel that the injection sites and the, the safe consumption sites are a step in the right direction with this? Yes. Yes, in absolutely. It, it helps get rid of the stigma. It helps get rid of the shame uh, because that, you know, a person, the, the addiction wants the person, they want to be isolated because they feel the shame, but it gets them out of that and they can use and have a normal conversation. They're treated with respect. Then they can use whatever they think. No one's sitting there judging them, making them feel bad, scorning them. And if they overdose, there's help right there. And that's totally a great solution. Let's talk about big pharma. And I, I don't want to bring it up like these guys are evil, but there's a huge issue regarding pharmaceutical companies. And I, I gave you the episode of Mind Body Matters where 
we interviewed a doctor about his experiences with um, the marketing techniques as well as kickbacks to doctors. Mm-hmm. What's the doctor's role in that? Like, I have a lot of respect for yeah. doctors, so I'm not blaming them either, but there's something that is happening, not just with Purdue and OxyContin, but as this doctor was saying, this is going on with all pharmaceutical companies, how they approach the doctors and influence them, and they feel indebted to uh, prescribe their drug. Right. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think there should be a clean cut, <laughs> straight out. A clean cut? A clean cut. No, no interaction whatsoever with the pharmaceutical companies. That's my belief. The doctors shouldn't have... Any interaction any, with them whatsoever. Any interaction whatsoever. But there's going to be drug reps. We should stop it. It's, it influences the decision-making, like we, you just alluded to. and But not in a nefarious way. Uh, that's debatable. With the issue regarding Purdue and their marketing techniques with OxyContin, you believe that those doctors back then knew but prescribed anyway, or they, they were just so caught up in the research? Or i, I got to be careful here how much I get into this. Uh, I'm the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against Big Pharma in Canada. Yeah, so I don't want to comment too much about that, but I think doctors were taken advantage of, wined and dined. When I was in my residency, they didn't allow them anywhere near us, and I think that should be the model. Uh, we can we can learn on our own. We don't need to have somebody coach us on what drugs to use and what's the best. We should be teaching ourselves this. We don't need an external influence because there's bias involved there and ulterior motives. Uh, and it's a dirty industry. Tell us about the lawsuit. What what are the accusations? You're the, the main claimant in a Canadian lawsuit, right? Yeah, and it's the same argument that's been argued in the States. Uh, some big settlements already. But the, the claim is they knew that it was dangerous, that it was addictive. Who's they? Various pharmaceutical companies. Big names. We won't mention them, but there's big names that are yeah. are mentioned in the lawsuit. Yeah. Okay. So it's the same argument that, that was used in the United States, that they were misleading physicians. They didn't properly provide all the information, minimize the uh, statistics that showed how addictive it was. They said a number that was clearly inaccurate and grossly wrong about the, the incidence of, of addiction. Purdue was marketing to the doctors that there's only a 1% chance of addiction. Is that what you mean? Yeah. That's just that's an example. Yeah. So so, you know, that's the problem is um, misleading information and the statistics that are provided, the reports that are provided are slanted. And this is this is what came up in your previous podcast, that there's a way to, to present data to lean in one particular direction, the data mining. So that that on its own in an ideal world, data mining. But when you get the results should not be assessed by the pharmaceutical company themselves, even though they're paying that for That would it. make sense. There should, be a, there should be a third party that gets involved and can call things independently. That would be the ideal solution. Because, you know, again, I understand that pharmaceutical companies, they're there to, for profit, right? So, so that's, the, that's the game. That's part of the game. Um, but I think it's important for the doctor in me to say that I want to provide the best quality care for my patients. And I don't want to be misled by someone who may not have my patient's best interests in hand. What do you hope to accomplish with uh, the lawsuit? What are your goals? Ideally, it's just to uh, make a statement that you can't get away with this sort of behavior, manipulate and mislead people. There's real people, whole communities that are devastated. It's atrocious what's gone on. And I can't blame it all on one thing, but there's clearly a big problem going on. We want to consider ourselves altruistic, caring uh, civilized human beings, and we need to take care of them. And we need to minimize the issues that are contributing to it. And when there's dirty games going on, that needs we need to be smarter of uh, how these games are played and to keep everybody happy, everybody safe. 
In your experience, what are some common misconceptions or stereotypes about addicts that contribute to the stigma that we need to change, and how could we change that? Substance users need to be treated just like everybody else. Just because of their history of addiction, that shouldn't detract from their care. We need to be humane, but not applying judgment. That's what it comes down to. So it's lack of education, fear of the unknown. I find some people get their backs up because they don't understand it and become judgmental because it's just a defense reaction. And and as you mentioned to me earlier when we were talking about the interview is that you seem to prefer substance user uh, than addict. Why why do you feel that we should shift the vernacular from addict to substance user? Right. It's like calling a, a person with diabetes a diabetic. It's disrespectful. A person is not defined by their condition. A person with diabetes, it's just, it's just as easy to say that and, and to be nice about it and not define a person by their medical illness. That's not, that's that's not who cool. they are. That's not right. It's not who they are. And let's just say for myself, like if I checked in a 12-step room right now, hi, my name's Dove, uh, I'm an addict. Uh, I'd rather say, hi, my name's Dove, I'm, a, I'm in recovery from opioid use. The, the difference is that I'm no longer the same person I was eight years ago. And I, I moved on in my life. And why should I... Uh, punish myself. You know, I can I can see the other side of the argument as well. It's like once an addict, always an addict. We don't differentiate between an active addict and a recovering addict that hasn't right. used for eight years. Thank you. Yeah. Right. That, you said that a lot better than I just did. Thank you for clarifying that. No, it's not right to say once an addict, always an addict at all. I'm, I was trying to make this fictitious argument in my mind. This is a sick person to start with. They've done some hard work to get there to get into recovery. That's the way to approach it. Um, they shouldn't be defined by their, their previous behavior and their previous medical illness. I think that's a probably clearer way to say that. So I've come a long way, and I should be proud of that. You, you should. Labeling and self-identifying as an addict, uh, I'm, I'm losing something in there. I'm forgetting the part about, oh, what about all that hard work I did? I should be proud of that. As we were talking before, the mind and body are, are one, but where is that connection point between addiction and mental illness? To me personally, addiction falls under the umbrella of mental illness. But it, the history of it, the reason why it's been separated from mental illness is because of the history that addiction is a fairly new science, whereas mental health science has been out for much longer. So they kind of evolved down separate streams, and only recently we're realizing they're under the same umbrella. I think that's the common viewpoint of, of modern-day psychiatry and addiction medicine. Does addiction cause uh, mental illness, or does mental illness cause addiction? I think mental illness is a strong word because we have to define what we're talking about here. Psychosis, depression, anxiety, or is it mental unwellness? You know, poor coping with stress. I think that's what I'd rather talk about. But also the other ones, the actual mental, the true mental illnesses, but poor mental wellness, like poor decision making. Right. That's a big difference. Yeah. That is absolutely tied in with addiction because the addiction is, is across the board is to treat pain. You know, whether it starts off with physical pain or mental pain. That's where it gets its grip on people. Why are so many people addicted? Why do doctors and cops and nurses, people who we consider to be high-functioning people in society, become addicted? Because there's issues going on that are behind the scenes that we've been so afraid to peel back and to look at. And it turned out with me personally. I've been in recovery eight years now, and only two years ago did it come to my attention that I personally had adverse childhood experiences. Trauma, you mean? Yes, trauma. I don't like calling it trauma, but it is, is trauma. We all have trauma. We all have adverse experiences, but some of us have a bit more, and it happens at a younger age. The soothing experience that a lot of addicts find that when they first use their drug of choice, they feel relieved and they feel soothed and they feel wonderful. Yeah, confident. So maybe that's where the connection is, is that there's something about the past and old coping mechanisms to soothe 
Right. And when they discover the drug of choice that works for them, boom. Yeah, that's exactly it. You just nailed it. Absolutely. People who struggle with alcohol use disorder, well, their drug of choice, alcohol being a social lubricant that they came out of their shell and felt more comfortable and confident. We're touching on something very good here, noticing that these things come from a fairly early point in people's lives with maladaptive coping mechanisms. That's what it would be called from a psychologist standpoint. What type of medicine would you like to go into? Because you're back working, so I, I want to really emphasize that part of the success story is that you're back working, you got your license, you're working in the clinic again, you're not working in the ER, but is that something that you would want to do? Would you want to go back into that type of medicine in, in the ER? I would to do that, but on a very like part-time basis. I would like to just because I did my training in that, I'm experienced in it, I think I have a lot to offer. So, you know, something like two or three shifts a month. But what I what I care about the most right now is what we had spoken about earlier, that getting to the people who are struggling in isolation. What I'd like to do is to do group therapy for people struggling with addiction or their families who are worried sick about them or people struggling with mental illnesses or anxiety, depression, poor coping. I, I can help more numbers that way. And I realized in my own recovery how much it helped me being in 12-step groups and a, a caduceus group, which is for healthcare professionals, but being in groups of other people who shared the same problems. So self-support groups, what it's called. Group therapy, whether it be online or in person, it doesn't matter. And to be able to um, relive that for myself, share my experiences, but listen uh, to other people and get them to talk about their issues. Like there's a lot of healing that takes place in that. That's what happens in rehabs, by the way. You know, learning to undo the addictive behaviors and talk about our problems. Two last questions. One, One question would be for a healthcare professional, not just the doctor, but a healthcare professional that is struggling with addiction, what type of advice would you pass along to someone that's listening that, you know, they're struggling with addiction, but they work in the healthcare system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, same theme here, getting out of the isolation, talking to somebody openly, having the guts to do it, because it's just going to get worse. Maybe some people can stay in steady state, but when you're involved with opioids or any substances, really... Things tend to escalate over time. Rarely does a steady state stay balanced over time, and things slowly fall apart. And so it's better to get involved and start talking about it earlier than later because it's a one-way street that leads to jails, institutions, and death for a lot of us. And a lot of loss, let's add in there too. A lot of harm, relationships lost, careers shattered. So get talking. Learn to speak up about what's going on and try to get out of that isolation. We're here for you too, by the way. You know, like we're here in recovery. I want to hear you talk. I want to. I want to know what's going on with you. I. I want to listen. And I hear that very genuine, very authentic from you. Thank you. And it's yeah. interesting how you mentioned about that for people that are in the healthcare profession that might be struggling, or anybody that's struggling with addiction, is to talk, is to find a connection with other people and talk about it. It reminds me of what my my co-host often says: we got to keep talking. That's his mantra. Every time we talk about, you know, what do we want to do with this podcast, uh, aside from discussing the mind-body connection, is to encourage a discussion overall about these subjects. And hopefully people will take this today and keep talking. Absolutely. That's great. I love that. Great things come out of that. Great things come out of communication. It's such an important part of of being human, to communicate. Completely the opposite of what's been happening post-COVID and during COVID with isolation. Right. We need to connect. You know, mm-hmm. we're no longer in a lockdown. We need to talk. We need to connect. We need to hug. We need to embrace each other for sure. 
Your story is amazing, you know, and I really, really admire your resilience and, and congratulations for your return to medicine. You're back working as a doctor. Through all yeah. that, what you shared <laughs> with us, yeah. you're back and you're Dr. Gebian and you're working in the clinic and you're back at it. That's yeah. amazing. Let me just summarize quickly, like what I've been through, yeah. the, the addiction itself, three rehabs, jail for 18 days, prison for eight months, lost my mother. My medical license was in jeopardy for the longest time. The marriage broke apart. My kids live in another province. And I managed to stay, keep it all together after all that. I'm not saying this to, to say, wow, look, look at me. I'm saying it, but like, no matter how bad it is for other people listening out there, it can That's get better. And it can get worse, too, if, you, if we continue to make the bad decisions. That's the point I'm trying to make. I don't talk about it much what I've been through. And I say, it feels nice. Thank you, Greg, to mention that. Like, um, I mean, it was horrible, some of this stuff. So no matter how bad it is, there are options to get out of that. That's my message to the world. I feel so fired up and energized, you know, like, uh, I'm glad. You know, and I'm lucky to be alive. Absolutely. You are lucky to be alive. And, and I, I think people benefit just by listening to your story and relating to it and knowing that there's a lot of obstacles in life. Some are tougher than others, but you can get through it. You can find resilience and do what you're doing is giving back. Thank you so much for coming on the show and providing this inspiration for us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. A sad story, but a success story, you know? I don't mind telling you, and you know I'm always truthful. Mm -hmm. I almost had a tear in my eye today. Oh, really? Yeah, just because you got to understand that uh, addiction can actually happen to anyone. Well, he's proof of that, right? Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm getting at. And... He lost a lot. Dove lost uh, his family. They're living in another province now. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm sure that, uh, that's got to be devastating. You were getting at what was your bottom. Right. And he said right. the thing that was his biggest turnaround was being arrested. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's very interesting that, you know, his story is complicated he reached a bottom that most people would think, okay, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. But he came back but and said, wasn't, but, but it wasn't. wasn't the end of the story. And he, and he said, yeah, you would think that I would, I would quit at that time, but he didn't. He had a lot of um, legal things that, uh, that, that caught up with him. But I also think that the thing that really got me was a lot of things happened on his birthday. And one yeah. of them was, yeah. the, 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 you know, the sudden death. Of his of his mother, mm -hmm. so that that really got me. But I'll tell you, he he's gone down a road, and thank goodness he's here to talk about it today. Yeah, and well, as we mentioned before with the podcast, we want to interview people that have had a journey of mind and body, and uh, uh, Dove is a good example of someone that um, has gone through uh, an opiate addiction during the opiate crisis and came close to overdosing, but. He didn't, and then he went on, got healthy, got recovery. He did his time in prison, and uh, you know now he's uh, like we said at the beginning, an, an advocate and, and talking about uh, about addiction. I, I think we need to hear that. You know, I think we need to hear success stories, and in the media, and obviously, you know, the the Netflix show with, with Painkiller, it's all you know, like really, really focused on on how damaging opiates are, which they are. Mm -hmm. Not everyone overdoses. No, uh, that's another thing that that caught me. He he described in detail. Uh, I think it was in the morning, and uh, 
he was down in the shower and he was literally green, as he said. Yeah, he was on the verge of death. He turned green, I guess, then you turn blue. He would know. He's a doctor, but I imagine he would have died in that shower if it wasn't for his wife finding him. At the time, his wife went down to check up mm-hmm. on him, and uh, and maybe that's what uh, actually saved his life. Oh, I believe so. Yeah. But what 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 an amazing story! And uh, again, to hear it from a doctor, mm-hmm. not uh, you know, not a not a street drug user, but it's a doctor for goodness sake. So it goes to show you, addiction can happen to anyone. It does. It does. Working in addiction, I can tell you that that. Uh, especially with opiates. A lot of people are introduced to opiates, not from some alley someplace and picking up a needle. Very often, like uh, Dr. Gebbian, uh, back pain or some kind of injury, they're prescribed Percocets like he did in his case, or maybe it's Tylenol 3 with codeine even, um, mm-hmm. can lead to dependency. And a majority of the people that I work with in the last number of years, uh, less people coming in for help regarding alcohol more people coming in regarding opiates and a very, very high percentage were very much like, like him that are your average everyday person. And I, 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 you're, you're exactly right that it can happen to anyone. It can happen to you. It did. It yeah. happened to me. It, it did. did. <laughs> it could happen to anyone. Yeah, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I think it's important that we have more of these interviews, Rob, uh, more people that have... Uh, gone through not just addiction, but mental health issues, physical issues. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing more people on the show that can talk about how they've made their way through their journey of mind and body. I just want to say thank you very much to our listeners that are Patreon backers. If you would like to help us out, it's a couple bucks a month, keeps the podcast going. Go to patreon.com backslash matters. Well, Rob, Another interview, another great chat with you, and uh, we'll be getting together pretty soon for yet another episode. Yes, we will, and I look forward to it. In the meantime, everybody, be kind to yourself. And most importantly, folks, be well. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, Hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends 